Cultivating Place is made possible in part through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy. This is Cultivating Place. I'm your guest host, Dave Schloem. On this special edition of the show, our guest will be Cultivating Place's wonderful host, Jennifer Jewell. Jennifer has a new book out and it's really special. It's an intimate and at the same time global take on the natural and social science aspects of one of the most fundamental things to life on earth, seeds. Jennifer's book is titled, What We Sow, on the personal, ecological, and cultural significance of seeds. It's an exploration of the lives of plants and people through the cycle of a botanical year, viewed through the fundamental lens of seeds. We'll hear about the good and the bad when it comes to the modern world of seeds, from those produced by natural plants battling to adapt to climate change to those influenced by human hands. She joins us now from her home in Chico, California. Jennifer Jewell, welcome to your cultivating place. Thank you so much, Dave. It's so fun to be a guest on the program. Well, and it's fun to be able to be in the host seat. So, you know, thanks for switching seats with me. I'll, I'll try not to, you know, get it get it too dented in for you so you can come back to the host seat next week. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, let, let's talk about this this great book you've written because I just finished it and really enjoyed it. Its, its title is What We Sow on the Personal, Ecological, and Cultural Significance of Seeds. And so my first question for you is, what was the genesis, the seed, if you will, for you deciding to write a book about seeds? You know, it probably goes way back because I've been interested in seed for a very long time, probably like all of us since being a child and being entranced with, you know, blowing a dandelion off or picking up an acorn or uh, even picking, you know, green beans or other kinds of fruits and um, seeds of plants that we just take for granted and are all around us all the time. And then when in 2020, I published my first book, The Earth in Her Hands, the research up sort of two years prior to the publication date into that book included one whole line of inquiry into women in leadership roles in the seed world. So this included like Renee Shepard of Renee's Garden and Seed Company, Rowan White of Sierra Seeds, Carol Loris, who is the uh, executive director of the Organic Seed Alliance, Vandana Shiva out of India, who is one of our globe's like most vocal, prolific, fierce, if you will, seed activists and protectors in this world. Um, Ira Wallace of the Southern Exposure Seed Exchange and her deep work trying to regenerate and share forward seeds of the African diaspora and the histories that go with them. And so it was already this like line of interest of people in our gardened world and this whole sub community of people who are particularly interested and passionate about seed care and seed knowledge. And when in 2020, I went on the tour for The Earth in Her Hands, you all remember 2020, when it got shut down for 
the COVID-19 un, you know, at that point, unknown length of time. John and I were in New York City in like the second week of what was supposed to be an eight or nine week tour. And all of a sudden, like everybody else, we had to go home. And one of the things on our mind was that we hadn't planned for a spring garden because we weren't going to be home. And so we started to try and order the seeds we would want. And over and over again, we got a response from online catalogs saying out of stock or back ordered or not available or, you know, these these messages that really made me go, wait a second, what? Like, what don't I know about the seed supply? And And it was this kind of primal fear of like, if I can't buy seed, I can't survive. I can't feed myself. And and while that's not really true, like that was the primal fear. And it just sent me on this several year research into more about seed and all that I didn't know about seed, even as, you know, someone who considers themselves a fairly knowledgeable and informed gardener, Dave. Yeah, and an interesting point there is that, uh, and, and it's in your book, that in times of great stress, culturally, societally, people turn to, you know, gardening and the ability to produce their own food because of that primal fear that you mentioned. For example, back in World War II, um, we had victory gardens and things like that. I can remember that when the pandemic, you know, first came along, that was, you know, things like, oh, we have to make sure our garden is going because, you know, we need to make our, we need to produce our own food. And I think that was happening with people who normally weren't maybe gardeners. Suddenly you had this huge demand for seeds. Yeah. Yeah, I think very definitely. And, and you know, our rational brains know that for most of us, growing all of our own food is just not a realistic goal. Like that isn't how our society or our lives are built anymore. And yet it is something I think most of us, especially in those moments, we want to try and figure out how to do it, even if we're not going to do it all, Right. Well, I'd like to back up a bit and just for for me as a fan of your program, this program, and a listener, uh, to find out a little bit more about you and your backstory, because you grew up with gardening as, as a big part of your life. Tell us a bit about your childhood and, and how gardening and, and being a part of putting seeds in the ground was, was part of your, your development as a human being. Yeah, these were great like memories that popped back up in doing the research for this book. And they're never very far away, but they aren't always front of mind. But my mother was a professional gardener, and anyone who's listened to the program will have heard me speak of her before. And my father was a wildlife biologist. And so, you know, the the basic premise of cultivating place is essentially their marriage the 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 human impulse to garden on my mother's side and the natural history that my father uh, really uh, studied, admired, shared with us. And both of them included this great like passion for being outside and curiosity of relating to plants and the wildlife that relied on the plants or lived with the plants and how we kind of 
intermingled with both. And my mother always had a big garden and she grew all kinds of crazy things. When I was very young, sort of zero to five, she worked in this wonderful old family-owned nursery in Berthoud, Colorado. And so some of my earliest memories, like one of my two earliest memories was playing in the potting soil underneath the potting table where she and other women were seeding trays or transplanting seedlings and potting things on. And it would have been probably, you know, in the the winter or early spring that they were doing this, getting ready for the big spring sales. And there was this great sense of like, warmth and humidity in the greenhouse. And uh, Bertha, Colorado is probably around 6,000 feet in the, the arid kind of front range of the Colorado Rocky Mountains. And uh, later, and, and, and so that memory of that smell of earth and that sound of women's voices and the there was like this great security in that memory. And then you know, by the time I was eight, we lived in Lookout Mountain, Colorado, which was at about 8,000 feet. And 8,000 feet is a really high elevation to be having a garden. And, you know, there are plenty of people who grow at that that elevation, but it has its own joys and trials. And my mother, who both of my parents grew up in the Northeast, uh, really had to learn how to work with the native plants, work with the climate, the dryness, the coldness. And she always, like I said, had this great garden and, and we would go and pick chard and spinach and strawberries and gooseberries and big bouquets of like poppies and coral bells. And it was a a magical place that was engaged with by my whole family every day. And so often when I listen to this program, there is the mother and the grandmother are very often the central figures in your guests in their journey to becoming cultivators of their places. I think that is true. Um, You know, it will often be an elder, mothers, grandmothers, neighbors, aunts, grandfathers, uncles, fathers, who shared with the person I'm speaking with um, something, right? It doesn't always have to be like a direct, they were a gardener and I learned to be a gardener, but even just like going out into a field or going into a forest or, and even if it wasn't for your entire childhood. Like when I interview people, even those that think they started gardening in their early adulthood or mid-adulthood, when you start talking to them, they dig up these memories of somebody who shared a love or a passion or a comfort with plants and cultivating these relationships in in our lives. And I, I always love when we find those sometimes hidden memories that that they'll say, oh, right, like I, 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 until you just asked me that question, I didn't even remember that. Sure, yeah, those triggered memories are wonderful. And uh, one of the things I really found 
fascinating about your book is the format of it. Uh, it's kind of, it's got a diary kind of format to it, back and forth between your your narrative, uh, personal narrative of your experiences and what's going on and what and the lessons you're trying to kind of convey uh, through the year. And it, so it starts, unlike a regular calendar in January, it does not start then. It starts in October and it ends in October. And uh, I want to know, you know, how did you come come to that? Because I, I found that to be really an engaging way to, to get into this book. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, it was one of those questions like chicken and the egg or the seed and the seed plant or when does something that is actually cyclical and recurring over, you know, how many millions, hundreds of millions of years at this point on this planet, Dave, like where does it really start and where does it really end? And the answer is it doesn't. But we come up with ways to find a beginning and an end in order to enter into that cycle. And so while the Gregorian calendar that starts on January 1st uh, is something of a conceit, it's sort of aligned near the winter solstice. And the same was true for what I decided to be the beginning of my book, and that is often referred to as a New Year celebration time in different cultural calendars across time and space. And it is aligned with the autumnal equinox and the harvest season. So the ending of one full cycle where, you know, if you think uh, that a seed germinates in the spring, grows into a plant, it flowers, it forms its own seed with successful pollination. And then that seed ripens and it disperses out into the world. That is sort of the symbolic new year of October. And so that is where I started this book. And and you're right, it is this partial journal, partial relaying of the lessons I am trying to learn as a gardener doing my due diligence as to what I should know more about and should understand more completely about our um, biological, but also economic and socio-political lives that are often born, literally carried on the access and availability of healthy seed. Yeah, and one of the things I like about the format is I know that this is a book that I will return to again and again. It's going to be one of those books, and you know, I hope this doesn't offend anybody out there, but my favorite books tend to be in my bathroom, (laughs) so that I can, you know, I like to kind of pick them up and, you know, as needed, you know, go through. And what I love about this is, uh, and I did it just today. I was like, oh, it's you know, it's September 11th. What was going on with Jennifer in the book? You know, around that time, Uh, and and that's. That's such a cool thing because, you know, whatever time of year it is after you've read this book, you can go back to like, okay, where am I now in the in the lives of seeds in this story? Yeah, I, I liked it too because it allowed me to kind of organically, like clearly the research for the book took several years and I've distilled it into this one year kind of plus a month cycle. But what was really valuable to me was observing things that are happening naturally in my life. You know, the oaks are putting on their leaves, the they're putting on their flowers, the pollen is blowing, the seeds are starting to, to form and or, you know, 
ripen or disperse. And as each thing happens, both in the natural world around me, in my own garden in town or at John's place out in the canyon just near town, other things are happening in our sort of indoor life, like the seed catalogs start arriving or, you know, there's been a a big conference or something happened in the larger world and I was able to use that, observe whatever it was that was happening and say, how is this related and what is this trying to teach me? So that each occurrence that triggered my imagination in terms of being related to seed allowed me allowed me to dig into something I hadn't thought about previously. Because I think, especially when we think about seeds, if we take plants for granted, we take seeds even more for granted. And um, this was an organic kind of... Uh, search and discover as things occurred across a year. We're going to take a short break, but stay with us. When we return, we'll continue our conversation with longtime host of this show, Jennifer Jewell, as we celebrate her new book, What We Sow, on the personal, ecological, and cultural significance of seeds. I'm your guest host, Dave Shlom, and you are listening to Cultivating Place. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Cultivating Place is also made possible through support from the Garden Conservancy, a not-for-profit organization whose mission is to preserve, share, and celebrate gardens, and America's gardening traditions. This fall, the Conservancy brings us Isabella Tree, author of The Book of Wilding, to discuss how spectacularly nature can bounce back if we only give her the chance through wilding. And what comes is not just wildlife in superabundance, but also solutions to the other environmental crises we face. The speaking tour takes Tree to New York City on September 29th for the Garden Futures Summit, and then to Middleburg, Virginia on October 2nd, and St. Louis, Missouri on October 4th. For tickets and more information, go to gardenconservancy.org forward slash education. Hey, it's Jennifer. On this week of the publication day of my third book, What We Sow, and sending this episode out into the universe with the book the day before the autumnal equinox tomorrow, September 22nd, and having the voice of my friend Dave Shalom host me here on Cultivating Place, I am ever grateful to be here growing along with you all through all the stages of this gardening life. Happy Equinox, friends. Even in this season of dispersal and heading into dormancy, keep growing, keep rooting, keep gardening.
This is Cultivating Place, and I'm your guest host, Dave Shlom. Let's return now to our conversation with the regular host of this show, Jennifer Jewell, as we talk about her new book, What We Sow, on the personal, ecological, and cultural significance of seeds. Well, when I, when I first saw the title and started to dive into this book, there was a story that popped into my mind immediately, and it's in your book. It's the story of the, the scientists that, were, that had the seed bank in Stalingrad during World War II. The heroic story of these scientists literally starving to death to protect these seeds. Could you just tell us a bit about the importance of you know, that story, and you've also seen there are many like it. Yeah, it's one of those, and I'm sure other people will also recognize this story, but it's this epic story of these scientists maintaining the first known agricultural um, industrial national seed bank. Uh, they are collecting for uh, the, the, the Russian country at the time who is empire building and wanting to study and know more about their crop plants, their native plants that could become crop plants. And in the midst of this, war breaks out. And uh, Vavilov, who was actually out in the field at the time, the, the city comes under siege and he can't get back and the scientists who are in the seed bank can't get out. But what they know is that they are caring for the legacy of their country's ability to feed itself and feed itself well going into the future ad infinitum. And they bought, you know, they sort of barrier themselves into the seed bank so that the opposing forces cannot get in, cannot destroy the seed bank and all of its collections, and therefore the food and national security of the country going forward. And they also do not touch the collection. So they, they starve to death protecting this seed bank with food all around them in the form of grain, rice and wheat and corn and whatever else was there was was a lot of it was edible and they didn't touch it because they knew that long-term security was uh, was at stake. Yeah, it's a it's a tragic and heroic story and mm -hmm. and has these ironic resonances today with what's going on between Russia and Ukraine oh, and you yeah. know, Ukraine trying to export wheat, you know, to feed the you know, the world because it's a large exporter of wheat. You know, and, and we've seen it in other places like uh, in uh, Syria. So this is not a new thing, like, right? Control the food and you control the people. So it is a tactic of war throughout time to destroy the food sources of other people in order to control them. And, uh, and seed banks uh, are something that I don't think most of us really, you know, consider or think about, but they're so important. Um, for example, tell us about Svalbard. So Svalbard is a place, but it's the shorthand we use for one of the most epic seed banks on the planet, which is uh, the the Crop Trust and the Norwegian government's common project in this seed vault. This was one of those really phenomenal 
coming together of countries and organizations and regional seed banks around the world coming together to kind of create the mother of all backups for seed banks everywhere. And they chose Svalbard because of its very northern latitude and its very stable cold temperatures. And pretty much all of the major regional uh, crop diversity seed banks from around the world contributed a full backup copy of their own collection. And this includes the USDA, it includes the Q Millennium Seed Bank, it includes the you know, centers for biodiversity of different crops, whether it's wheat or corn or beans, the dryland plants coming out of the Middle East. They all have backup copies at Svalbard. And there was a lot of there was a lot of controversy about this because there was a lot of fear that if you have all of these resources and genetics in one place, if the wrong person was in control of that, it could really go the wrong way for the future of the commons and access to seed and genetics over time, right? So there was there was a reasonable fear as to the agenda for this seed bank and the control and oversight of it going forward, just at a political and philosophical level. Now, most of the people who are involved in the development and now the oversight of Svalbard are very clear that it has multiple checks and balances in place so that specifically corporate interests from wherever in the world have no sway over Svalbard. It is the the individual countries or organizations' collections held there are held with only the country who deposited having the ability to remove the seed they themselves have put into that seed bank. They accept no genetically modified seed deposits into the bank. So it has so far lived up to its promise to be the most neutral of collection sites. And I believe it has proven to be just that over time. And it was established in 2008. There we go. Yeah. You know, you bring up an interesting point because you mentioned genetically modified seed. And this is one of the things that I found really um, fascinating and disturbing reading your book about how uh, industrial agriculture, the, the, the monoculture agriculture that uh, is dominating the world's food supply in so many ways, there's that this battle going on, if you will, and you can comment on that, between those corporations like the Monsantos of the world and Bayer mm-hmm. uh, that are trying to, you know, kind of create a monoculture of seeds that are genetically modified and basically, in a way, imprisoning farmers to, into a treadmill system where that's all they can do is, you know, grow grow this crop and use these pesticides and herbicides versus the, the people that you talk to all the time, the heroes of the story who are trying to maintain this genetic diversity of heirloom seeds, if that's the right term, term to use. Well, heirloom is definitely one of the terms to use. And and yes, like this was the ongoing tension in the book, right? Is who owns the seed if if seed can truly be owned and who is controlling the seed? I mean, and there were some really depressing 
statistics, Dave, along the lines of, you know, four major global petrochemical pharmaceutical companies control a little over 50% of all commodity seed in the world. Yeah. And something like 45% of all the genetics for GM corn and soy are held by Bear Monsanto alone. And so like right there, there's this really big flashpoint of like, wait, why is there a petrochemical and pharmaceutical company in control of these things? Like what does seed have to do with petrochemical corporations and pharmaceuticals? And, you know, it's it's kind of an unsettling reality that uh, it's because seed is big money. And there will be people who disagree with me in, in this answer or in this viewpoint, and I respect that. But after all of my research, I am not on principle anti-GM or anti-GE. What I am anti is having a for-profit only mindset at the expense of future care and integrity and respect for the natural resources of our world, amongst which are all of this enormous biodiversity of seed. And I do not think there is enough oversight in place to make sure that the intentions and the long-term benefit for all is kept front of mind. And I also um, have some real trouble with believing that it's the only way to feed our growing populations going forward. That hope of the green revolution in the first place has never panned out. And I don't think it's where we need to put all of our time and energy going forward. I would rather see all of our time and energy going into creating healthy ecosystems, healthy soil, healthy water, and healthy uh, biodiversity of humans and communal structures built on those healthy resources in order to feed us all and feed us well. Yes, and uh, we have been genetically modifying plants for millennia, mm -hmm. you know, for our own purposes. So, you know, there is that, that is a reality. Whereas nature does it on its evolutionary mm -hmm. scale. Go ahead. I just want to jump in here because that is true. And like, that is a beautiful part of the story. The human hand in self-selecting or breeding or crossing the plants that have come down to us as our greatest staple foods, that is a beautiful story. So I think it's really important that at any of these controversial topics, whether it's capitalism and the corporate, like, you know, monoculture of agro-industrial you know, agriculture, I think it's important that I don't move into a binary of uh, this, that, either, or, but that we look at it from all perspectives and we say, what can we take that's good from this? And what can we get rid of that is not serving us? And then move forward. I think that it's just, it's really important not to demonize any one thing, but to be in open-minded conversation about all of these things. 
Another interesting aspect of this book, it, it comes down to the word diaspora, mm. the, the dispersion of, of people, you know, from their native homelands, you know, from whatever the reasons are, war, uh, can be climate change now, famine. These things happen where people get displaced, and yet they bring their seeds with them. And again, this is this is one another aspect of this history and this research that even talking about it the way you just asked it, Dave, makes me kind of like, you know, get a little frisson of uh, like goosebumps or like, oh, that's just so great. You know, all of the cultural seed keepers that I spoke with referred over and over again to the symbolic and ritual and religious in in many ways importance of seed being these embodied lessons and learnings and prayers and blessings from the past to the future that every seed is encoded with the knowledge and the experience that the plants have absorbed have adapted to have you know learned from and adjusted to so that they are better able to survive in the next generation and there is something just really powerful about that and i i loved that symmetry between the biological word for the parts of a plant that allow a seed to disperse. So the diaspore is both the seed going out, but it's also all of the, the parts of a plant that uh, help that seed release when it's ripe out into the world. And that word we hear reflected in diaspora and dispersion. And that tenacity of humans to carry their most important seed with them just strikes me over time as this beautiful lesson in remembering what's really important. One of my favorite images that really stuck with me uh, is of the Native American women, the, the, the First Nations people, um, weaving seeds into their hair mm. to, in, in a way to hide them and, and preserve them. Mm -hmm. And you hear about this with people of the African diaspora as well, uh, the enslaved people coming over, um, being you know, forced to come to the new world, as it were, quote unquote, weaving seed into their hair. You hear women are often the seed keepers in historic cultural communities um, for a lot of different reasons. And, you know, they would sew them into the hems of their skirts or sew them into their sleeves or, you know, hold them in their mouth even in order to carry them with them in a time of uncertainty as to what was what was happening, these migration moments. And um, yeah, that, that association um, is just it's a recurring and universal story of bringing with us what matters most, yeah. You're listening to Cultivating Place with Jennifer Jewell. I'm your guest host, Dave Shlom, and we're going to take a short break, but stay with us. Jennifer and I will continue our exploration of nature, science, and the culture of seeds as we talk about her new book, What We Sow, on the personal, ecological, and cultural significance of seeds. 
Hey, it's Jennifer again. So this came to me while traveling recently and going over all of my talks, and I kind of liked it. I liked it because it reminds us that everything we do actually builds on everything we will do. Everything we grow teaches us what we will grow next and how we might do that. So here's, here's what I saw. In cultivating our places, the earth is in all of our hands, and under all of our skies, what we sow matters. Seeds, like thoughts, become the world we grow. Choose the good ones and sow them with care. Another good blessing from this communally generative and germinated work. This is Cultivating Place. I'm your special guest host, Dave Schloem. Let's get back now to our conversation with the longtime host of this show, Jennifer Jewell, as we talk about her new book, What We Sow, on the personal, ecological, and cultural significance of seeds. One of my absolute favorite aspects of, of the book is the sense of place, of home, hmm. of John's home in the canyon. You write so beautifully about it. You understand the workings of nature uh, as well as anybody I've ever encountered through, through the written word. It's really wonderful, and especially to hear about John's observations, like, for example, when he finds bear scat underneath his apple tree. Right. And, you know, and then you describe the different seeds that are in there, and that's a way of dispersal. Yeah. Uh, I, was just, uh, I, I was just fascinated every time there would be some kind of description of his home. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I think there are people who have uh, been rooted into their places for, you know, for decades or for generations. And then there are those of us who have moved a great deal. And, you know, there is no wrong way or right way. But one of the joys of being rooted in one place for a very long time is your intimacy with that place. And that comparison and contrasting between my having moved around a great deal, but always immersing myself in where I am with John, who has been in his place for about 40 years. And the importance of kind of, for any one of us, starting where we are with the seeds and the plants and the weather patterns and the seasons of our exact place being some of our best teachers. And John, as a, a plantsman and very knowledgeable naturalist uh, when it comes to the native plants and bumblebees, we both have this shared but complementary curiosity about, and just pure joy, Dave, just pure joy of being like, oh my gosh, look at that. And, you know, the fact that he sent me a picture of a, a pile of bear scat, and I thought that was lovely. I think that says a lot about us <laughs> and what we enjoy in this world. Um, but that I thought I thought yeah. about you this morning and John. Yeah. On walking my dogs and I was, you know, there oh, there's some people that didn't pick up their dog poop yeah. in the neighborhood. And uh, darn that, that's not good. Uh, 
but then I saw some some poop that was had seeds in it, and I'm like, oh, that's that's a fox because we have a fox in the neighborhood, and you know you can just tell there's seeds in the in the wild animals poop. Yeah, and you can tell exactly what's ripe uh, based on what you see in wild animals scat, and she'll be like, oh, so it's a good year for manzanita, and um, and I think that there are parallels that we can learn from in how we relate to one another in care and intimacy, how we relate to our land or the land on which we are lucky enough to make our lives and how we relate to the plants we either are surrounded with or we invite into our gardens. And I think those parallels have insights and lessons that we can all um, become kinder and more um, respectful from from paying close attention to and heeding. Yeah, and invasive plants are such a, they can be so problematic. In, in, at John's place, you, there's a description of trying to eradicate as best you can. It's, it's impossible. The scotch broom. Mm. Tell us about that plant and why it's a problem. You know, like many of the invasive plants, I I love gardening. I love gardeners. I love that I am a gardener. It's one of my great identifiers, Dave. But we are as, you know, and I believe firmly that gardeners are a cohort who will help to save the world. That said, we are in many ways, historically and in the present, as much a part of the problem as we are a hoped-for part of the solution uh, to any of these problems. And invasive plants are a perfect example. I think something like 85% of all invasive plants across North America were introduced by gardens or by the horticultural trade. And scotch broom is certainly one of them. It was brought in uh, to North America, and you can see it as an invasive plant from Southern California all the way up into the, the northern part of Washington state. And it is a plant that was introduced here from the Mediterranean, uh, there are several different kinds of, of broom, um, and it has no natural predator, it, and it loves this climate. So uh, not having a natural control means that nobody eats it, and nobody eats on it, uh, and so it, it just thrives, and it produces like a prolific, like it's a crazy calculus of how much seed this produces each year. And it forms these very dense colonies that are highly flammable, and then they dry out and die, and and that is highly flammable. Uh, and so dead or alive, this plant is a, is a fire hazard and outcompetes the native plants, and so will really take over whole systems and extirpate the native plants that... Um, add to the habitat and uh, ecological contribution of, of our ecosystems. And so it's just like a lose, lose, lose. Yeah, I used to live on at the end of a road called Scottwood in Paradise uh, many years ago. And th there was scotch broom all over the place mm. in the canyon down there. And I never realized as a kid growing up that it was an invasive plant. It didn't belong there. Um, I, and 
you know, I love, I love plants. I love nature, but I do have some plants that I just, I don't, I don't like, I despise. And uh, poison oak is not one of them because it's like, well, it belongs here. And if you respect it, they're like rattlesnakes. You're respectful of it. You'll be okay. Um, but the, my, the one plant that I can't stand is uh, Russian star thistle. Oh, yeah. Another one, another one introduced in order to be uh, possibly a, a solution or a help to something. And then uh, it is just, it has, you know, dispersed itself across uh, California and beyond and is just a bane. And one of the things that I think is important in all of the conversations we have on cultivating place is this idea of shifting the paradigm of what is beautiful and what is not beautiful. Because for many generations, the you know, seeing a hillside in full yellow bloom when the different brooms come into bloom was something that people would like charter buses to go see. And it is a beautiful yellow color. But the minute you realize and someone teaches you that it is an invasive, it is out competing the very needed natives and that it feeds nobody, uh, you all of a sudden go from thinking it was beautiful to, re- to seeing it, as you say, as quite ugly. And so this, this paradigm shift of not advancing the idea of an invasive plant as being beautiful is an important one in our garden world. Yeah, and that's, you know, one of the features of your program that's really I appreciate is is trying to get back to using native plants in the place where you live. Mm-hmm. It's a really, you know, it's an important conversation, especially at this time of climate change, of biodiversity loss, of seeing the long-term consequences of, you know, land use decisions and urban planning decisions that have not kept the biodiversity and health of our ecosystems as one of their priorities. And, um, I am not saying, nor have I ever said, that you should only garden with natives. But I, I am definitely with Dr. Doug Tallamy and others in the idea that there is, there are so many beautiful and contributing natives and edible natives that to have between 70 and 80% natives in our gardened landscapes makes a lot of sense. And the more our native plant trade is really ramping up with good selections and good seed-grown, genetically diverse plants available for us, or our native plant societies are, are helping to introduce good native selections into the trade, the easier and easier it becomes. And the more examples we see of beautiful native plant gardens, uh, the easier it becomes. And you know, to see birds or butterflies or bumblebees or, you know, even hawk moths make their full life cycles in our gardens, like there is nothing that is more joyful than, you know, watching a butterfly oviposit their egg on a leaf, seeing that little egg hatch, seeing that little larva eat the leaves and then pupate and then hatch into this winged creature, I mean, it's miraculous and it will make you believe in native plants for sure. 
And you mentioned bumblebees, and I know they're very important to John. And you write about preserving some of your tomato seeds uh, to plant for the next year. And then I was, you know, as I read along, you, you say that, you know, when we buy tomatoes, you know, in the middle of winter, when there you know, are no tomatoes in, you know, growing around here, um, we are contributing in a way to decimating these bumblebee populations. Could you just briefly comment on that? Because I found that to be really interesting. Yeah. Tomatoes are of the um, Solanaceae family of plants, like eggplants and peppers and the other native Solanaceae that are around us. And, and they have a particular structure of flower that is best pollinated by bumblebees who have this fantastic ability to sonicate. And so it, that's this physical vibration the bumblebee clasps onto the anthers with the, the pollen inside of them, and it does this little vibration that is a sort of high-frequency vibration, and that triggers the plant to release its, its pollen. And so tomatoes are best pollinated by bumblebees who can do this sonication and release the, the pollen. Now, other, other pollinators can pollinate them, but bumblebees are the best. And one of the things that has become clear is that in about the last 50 years, there's been a serious decline in bumblebee abundance and diversity. So individual species, their numbers, the number of species has declined, but also the abundance in individual species. And several of these declines have been directly attributed to the collection of native bumblebees in California being shipped back to Europe, being bred and uh, in, reproduced into great numbers so that those great numbers of bumblebees are then shipped back to these um, big greenhouses growing these plants in order to um, enlist the bumblebees' help in these greenhouses. So the bumblebees were all put into these greenhouses uh, to pollinate these crops. But what happened is that in some moment in the breeding of the bumblebees over in Europe, they came back to the U.S. with a pathogen that we did not have here yet. And when the bees started to get sick or were not pollinating the way that people had hoped they would pollinate, they were either uh, gotten rid of, killed, or they were released out into the wild. And when they were released out into the wild, they brought this pathogen with them. And um, while the research is not 100% definitive, most bumblebee researchers and scientists are now fairly confident that it was the pathogen that came from these indentured bumblebees that decimated several of our species here. And so it makes me go back to this question of the convenience of having everything all the time out of season. Like, is it really worth endangering our bumblebees so that I can have a tasteless tomato in the middle of winter? And for me, the answer is no. But the second part of that is, the answer is also, it is so important that we sometimes slow down enough to see that some of the things we are making use of in our life 
under the guise of convenience might not be worth that convenience. Well, we're about out of time, but before we let you go, could I get you to read the entrance for your your diary, if you will, uh, for September 29th, and uh, ending with the the what then? Could you could you read that passage for us? Mm-hmm. September 29th. I ask again, what are seeds if not a microcosm perfectly situated inside of a lived life? And what are our lives if not most appropriately contextualized within our lived experience on this planet? I am no longer seed-bearing. I have blessedly aged out of this capacity naturally. But my daughters are of childbearing age, and they now carry a shared and new genetic narrative forward. If we as a species so completely dominate, disrupt, dismember the world around us that we end the natural and healthy seed-bearing cycles for all other creatures and life forms, what then? Well, that passage to me was the big takeaway from this wonderful book, Jennifer. And uh, I want to thank you for being the host of this program and allowing me to be the guest host for a day and uh, for writing this great book, What We Sow on the Personal, Ecological, and Cultural Significance of Seeds. Thank you very much for being the host today. It has been such a pleasure to be a guest and to have your insightful and thorough reading accompany me on this conversation. Dave, thank you. Thanks again to our guest, your regular host of this show, Jennifer Jewell. It was an honor to be on this program with her. Jennifer is a longtime friend and truly a gift to anyone interested in the world of green and growing things. Here's a short story that will tell you a lot about my friend Jennifer. Years ago, when we lost our beloved German shepherd, Daisy, I asked Jennifer for advice on what to plant on her grave in our backyard. The next day, there on my doorstep were some lovely Shasta daisies to plant. You should also know that I live an hour away from Jennifer. That's just the kind of person she is every hour of every day and for this hour with you every week. Be sure and get a copy of her new book, What We Sow, on the personal, ecological, and cultural significance of seeds. It's available from most major booksellers, and you can order it on the Cultivating Place website, cultivatingplace.com books. Jennifer Jewell will be back next time in her regular role as the host of this program. Be sure and join her then. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you through the support button at the top right corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. Cultivating Place is also made possible through the generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation and the Garden Conservancy. Our team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler, tech and web support from Angel Huracha, weekly show transcripts by Dulos Transcription, and communication support by Sheila Stern. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. 
Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. For Jennifer Jewell, I'm Dave Schloem.